Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague from Monash University, Steph Gaskell. And I actually saw you in the flesh, Steph, ran into you in the lab this morning. You did. First time in a while. I know. I know. I was surprised to see you there. <laughs> I well, was like... wearing a mask, it's even harder to figure <laughs> out who's who. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how was your day? I saw you, um, we were talking about the egg, I think, on yes. the last episode, the, yep. the EGG machine. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's the first time I've seen it in the flesh. You had it out and setting it up as I arrived. Yeah, yeah. All yep. going well? All going well, yeah. Um, so had our first participant through uh, who has done the three trials. So, yeah, that's that's going um going well and collecting all the data for that uh but do still need more participants so would love to recruit um any any um recreational runners out there they can be triathletes um as well um they just need to be able to last for three hours on the treadmill so i guess that's the the caveat there um, that I guess keep in mind that you're jumping off the treadmill every 30 minutes or so. So it's, you know, it's not nonstop as such. Yeah. And it's not a hard pace, is it either? It's like 60% no. of your VO2 max. It's kind of like ultra marathon type it, pace. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And then they can, you know, listen to music, podcasts, etc. And I guess the, the um, benefits for them is they can get some results out of it. So, you know, get, some data on their fitness levels, their VO2, um, bit of body composition, and then obviously through the trial learn a bit about the gut and how the gut functions as well. So, um, yeah, so that study is um, is going, thankfully. Um, had a, a slight hold up with the, the short break for COVID. Um, but, and, uh, and the main aim of this study is to find out um, if with increasing exercise duration, what actually happens to the gut in terms of the functioning of the gut um, and does it slow down and not work as well. So looking at the impact of running for um, that increased duration. Excellent. Mm. And I think that's a a pretty nice um, segue, Steph, because that's exactly what we're discussing today on The Long Munch Mm. is this topic of what causes gut issues during exercise. So... um, obviously an area that you've been doing a lot of work on at the moment. You're sort of halfway through your PhD on this topic. And of course, our guest for today is you. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, no expert guest because we've got the expert in house on this one. So yeah, we'll um, have a good, good chat very shortly, Steph, um, on all things about figuring out what causes people's gut issues during exercise, which would be great. Yeah. Yep. So just to to give an overview here on the long munch, we take a deep dive into the most common uh, questions that people have around sports nutrition for running, cycling and triathlon. These are the sort of things that people are often scratching their heads about or debating amongst their friends during or after training and these kind of things. So we break it down here, invite a guest expert or Steph as our expert today um, and, and explain it to you and try and answer that question. And then in a second episode, Uh, get an athlete perspective as well, which we will have next week, of course, as well. Alan, you're looking like you're a bit stressed there. Um, Do you need to get something off your chest? 
Yeah, well, as you know, Steph, this uh, little segment of our podcast is really about those things that you hear or see or read on social media, and you just kind of roll your eyes a little bit, and then we come into the lab when we do see each other and go, oh, don't get me started, Steph, <laughs> or whoever else is in the yeah. lab at the time who, who wants to listen to our rant. Um, and so this one, this one really does scratch the, uh, I don't know, the hairs on the back of my neck or whatever yeah. you want to say. <laughs> now, Steph, you've done a lot of work in the area of gastrointestinal nutrition, both in the clinical sphere and in sports nutrition. You're currently doing a PhD on the topic. You're working in probably the lab that publishes the most research on this topic out of anywhere in the entire world. Can you answer me this question, Steph? What does the term gut health mean? I don't know, Alan. You've got me stumped there. What What is it? Exactly. That's exactly my point. People are throwing around this term gut health left, right and centre. It's on every social media feed. It's on every, you know, wellness slash health slash whatever feed of, of, you know, everyone's channels on YouTube and all these kind of things. Gut health, what does it mean? No one knows. And this is the big problem. Everyone throws around this term and no one knows what it means. Gut health could be literally anything to do with the gut and to do with health, but that's so broad, it's basically meaningless. From your perspective, Steph, when people say gut health, what does that sort of conjure up for you? Oh, just I don't love the term gut health um, because it is, it's just, it's just such a broad term. Um, And I think when people talk about gut health, um, they usually are speaking about just gut bacteria and then they think they can take a probiotic or a prebiotic or go get the, you know, um, biome, you know, assessed and um, and that's, I think, in a broad sense what perhaps the general public think in terms of gut health. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it's a, a term that's used to sell a lot of stuff. Yeah, supplements. Yeah, yeah exactly. supplements. As you said, microbiome testing, probiotics, kombucha, all of this stuff's kind of sold under this term of, of gut health, like it's some miracle potion that's going to help you and somehow your gut's going to be happy and you're magically better and happy and, you know, gut-brain axis is thrown around a lot. Mm. But really, from a research point of view, we're really scratching the surface on all of this stuff. We mm. don't really understand much of it or what it actually means. Yeah, um, exactly. So we need to take a step back and look at that and think, when we say gut health, what do we mean? Mm. When someone says this is good for your gut health, we don't just say, oh, okay, that must be good because mm. ask Where? them, what do yep. you mean by gut health? Mm. What is it good for? Mm-hmm. Is it good for reducing my risk of bowel cancer? Mm. Is it good for mental health? Yep. Is it good for just going to the toilet better? Like yeah. it could mean absolutely anything and how or nothing. And most yeah. of the time it means absolutely nothing. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Are the claims backed up? All right. I think that's enough, Steph. Rant over. Yeah, you you were pretty calm. I don't feel calm now. <laughs> it's probably the least calm I've been at any of these rants, to be honest. <laughs> Love it. But that's all right. We'll we'll get in and talk a bit about some of those topics mm. in the context of gut issues during exercise today, and hopefully start to unravel those a bit for people and, and answer some questions. Yeah. So it's episode seven A, Steph. Today. The topic is what causes gut issues during exercise. Now, as we said, 
there's probably no one more expert than yourself to answer that question. So we haven't drafted in anyone. We're doing this one in-house today. So we'll just have a bit of a discussion backwards and forwards with ourselves. Uh, and as always in episode 7b, we'll have a, a guest and we'll get to that at the end. But if we start off thinking about um, gut issues during exercise uh, and what causes them, I guess, firstly, how common is gut exercise, uh, you know, gut issues during exercise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's, um, it can be very common. Uh, it, it does depend on a lot of factors. Um, and if you're looking at, you know, in terms of the incidence in sports um, for gut symptoms, you know, not as commonly seen in in your sort of in your power type sports um, and strength sports. Not to say that it doesn't happen, but if you're comparing that to um, your endurance or ultra endurance type of sports, um, running your triathlon and just that real long duration type of exercise, then the incident is is a big jump. So you're talking about less than ten percent in the um, the power type sports and those things and then you're going into you know more than 60 percent consistently um in the ultra endurance and then when you when you step it up into you know ultra marathon um running it's it can be seen in 90 percent of the participants um that are doing mm-hmm. these these sports and and um and 60 percent of those symptoms can actually be severe symptoms where it's actually impacting on them um being able to complete the event um and or leading to you know quite significant um gut disturbance for them yeah and that's an important distinction isn't it because you know in research we you know we can measure every single gastrointestinal symptom someone has but if it's like a burp or a fart like it's technically a symptom but it's really not of any consequence exactly. and it's pretty normal for someone yes. over 10 hours they're going to have a burp or a fart when you exactly. you know eat and drink that much over that period of time yeah yep yep and even mm. just like drinking small amounts you know i have participant today and we're drinking not a significant amount um but it's it was super common throughout that exercise for a bit of like low level belching to to occur didn't bother um mm. that person um, but it's, yeah, it's just something that will happen. So, um, you know, yeah. um, you definitely need to look at that severity of symptoms. Yeah. And we've given two examples there in terms of belching and, and flatulence, but mm. there's a whole gamut of potential symptoms, isn't there? So we can mm. kind of break them into sort of upper gastrointestinal issues, lower gastrointestinal issues, and kind of other, I suppose. Do you want to start off with the upper and describe what the, the common upper gastrointestinal issues are? Yeah. So um, upper gastrointestinal symptoms are um, things like your... Um, so we can get the belching, um, we can get um, stomach fullness more in the upper region of, of the gut, um, we can get just central uh, stomach cramping um, yep. in the gut as well. So when you say um, the upper region of the gut, we're yep. talking like just below the rib cage kind of thing, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, just uh, cramping stitch um, is, is, is in that area as well um and urge um to regurgitate uh, is yeah urge to regurge is often how i shorten it too yeah Yeah. um that can be quite a common one um and then you've got uh you sort of the the lower um 
gut symptoms and they can be, you know, um, flatulence, um, a really common one, lower abdominal bloating, um, left and right intestinal cramps in that area as well, um, and urge to use bowels, um, so urge to um, defecate. I think most um, runners out there will probably have a story where that's occurred to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and then you've got what we call sort of like the other symptoms, uh, and that's your nausea, dizziness, and, and stitch um, yep. would fit into that category. So, yep. yeah, so you've got upper, lower, and, and the other. Yep. And, and we talked about that urge to regurgitate before, but obviously that can become more severe to be actual regurgitation or complete mm. vomiting as well. Vom yeah, vomiting. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Cool. All right. So I think most people, um, as you said, you know, these are, are relatively common, particularly in, in runners. And we'll talk a bit about, you know, differences between running and cycling uh, a little bit later on. Um, and so most people would probably relate to at least one of those symptoms, even if it's not too severe, at least yeah. some stage in their, their running, cycling or triathlon. Um, in terms of what causes them though, what do people, like most athletes, when they come and see you, you know, when you're working with them in private practice or people that are coming into the lab and having uh, an assessment or, or as a participant in the study like you had today, mm. what do people tend to think causes these issues? Mm. Yeah. Um, they do a lot of um, trial and error and, you know, like listening to peers perhaps and what's worked for them or, of course, Dr Google um a, like a range of things that they can do so some people might think taking a probiotic um may help them you know can change they think you know change the what's going in their gut so surely that could be good um and then other people um you, you know like um they'll change they may start to change the the diet even their leading diet they may actually start to have a bit of a play with that because they've heard like um what they can hear commonly um endurance athletes can can hear that low carb high fat um has helped you know um, manage their symptoms so they're like oh well i'm trying to chuck in all these carbs it doesn't seem to be working for me um you know my buddies here are having success with that what about if I try that? Um, or they think, oh, well, maybe it's um, my gels or my drink products. And as you know, there's a lot of clever marketing that goes on and there's particular gels that market, you know, how they can solve gut issues or they can empty quicker. And um, so so there's really like a, a, a really big, a big range, I think. Um, and it really is just a, a trial error um, approach. Um, scattergun, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. People yep. just kind of try everything. Try everything, anything. exactly, and that's what they can do, and then they're just, they're, they're lost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and occasionally people sort of hit on a solution from that, but, you know, certainly from, from my experience working with athletes, and, and I'm sure yourself as well, Steph, um, more often than not they don't find the cause of the issue, and it yeah. can be very frustrating. Exactly, and or they um, even just thinking about general practice, um, they then potentially have gone too strict, you know, like they're chucking everything out that then could be actually impacting on the performance. So making so, things worse rather than better. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, and I guess the other thing is, you know, sometimes people are, you know, low-carb, high-fat's a good example, or people that completely mm. cut out gluten because they think mm. that's contributing to the issue, mm-hmm. uh, or FODMAPs or something like that, which yep. we'll, we'll talk a little bit about later on. Yep. Um, you know, these things have potential consequences in terms of just general day-to-day nutritional adequacy if you're doing that for, for long periods of time as well. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Um I guess the other thing we probably forgot to mention before is that the focus of today's episode is specifically on the gut issues that happen during exercise. And I think that's Mm. an important distinction as well, because, um, you know, when you, when you talk about this kind of stuff and you talk about gut issues in athletes, they could be gut issues that people are having day to day when they're not exercising, or it could be things that are specifically happening during exercise. And that's an important distinction, both in terms of the research that's out there and how you read and interpret that. And the information that's you know people are, are writing about on blogs or podcasts or whatever uh, relating back to that research, um, and then also just in terms of the, the different um, causes and and then strategies to to try and prevent or manage those issues as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. So we know that a lot of people get gut issues. We sort of discuss what they are. Uh, we've discussed what people traditionally have done to try and resolve those gut issues in terms of that kind of trial and error scattergun kind of approach just try a bit of everything and see what works and often it doesn't you know nothing seems to be working um so if we think now about what actually does cause gut issues this is i guess a a relatively new area of research in terms of you know having a, a pretty good overview of the different ways that gut issues can arise do you want to just describe what that is and i guess what those main causes are Mm, yeah um So I should start um, by saying that a lot of my learning and um, in this particular area has been through my supervisor and who we both are lucky enough to work with, so um, Ricardo Costa. Um, And, you know, I think he's really paved the way in this area um, Mm, and helped, you know, um, make the waters less muddy, I guess. Um, So... um, so uh, he's got a really good review in this particular area and we can link it um, in the social media. Um, but, you know, we when we think about symptoms, just like you said, during exercise, we, we would refer to that in terms of exercise-induced um, gastrointestinal syndrome, which is basically saying that when we exercise, um, there appears to be kind of like two main causal pathways that happen. Um, So as we know, when we exercise, um, blood flow is wanting to go to the muscles, you know, supply the muscles with um, energy, um, uh, nutrients, uh, etc. So less um, blood flow to the the gut uh, and and quite significant less blood flow to that area. So um, that's, that's one pathway. Uh, then we have another pathway which we refer to as um, it's like a neuro neuroendocrine so um, system. So looking at your your sympathetic um, and parasympathetic, so stress type of response there. Um, which, so it's kind of the, the the hormonal system and the, yes. the nervous system, which both um, work can develop yep. a stress response to to anything that causes stress. But in this case, the stress is the exercise itself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, when you when you look at those pathways, you know, if we're not getting much blood flow um, to our, our gut, um, we have 
uh, you know, your small intestine, large intestine. So you've got your stomach, small intestine, large intestine. If we don't get much blood flow um, in those areas, then, you know, we're not getting much blood flow to the lining of those cells. Um, and then we can get injury in that area just because we're not getting nutrients and, and oxygen there. So they can, you know, start to, I guess, die off. Um, and so a little bit like um, um, your angina, I guess, lack of oxygen to the, the heart muscle causes angina or if severe enough, it's a heart attack. It's kind of a, a similar thing in a way, um, more like the angina. It's the less severe kind of variant. Yeah, yep, yep. Um, and then when we get injury in that area, then, you know, it just depends how much that's happening, how severe is that, um, how long is, is that lack of blood flow, you know, going to the area. Um, and that can then lead to, okay, if we're getting injury in that area, then um, we can start to get um, leakage, I guess, of, of endotoxins. So toxins um, in our body, we can get leakage there and an inflammatory type of response. Um, so this is stuff that, that's sitting in the gut, which is kind of keeps it away from the blood. But if those cells break down, then it can get into the blood where it's not supposed to be. Exactly. Yep. 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 Um, and that itself can, yeah, lead, lead to symptoms. Um, and then you've got your, if we look at that, um, the hormonal um, uh, stress response, uh, then when, when, when we've got a significant um, stress there, then that uh, can just slow down uh, how well the gut is functioning and digesting and absorbing. Um, and then when that happens, you know, we're not as able um, to absorb nutrients and food as well. We can't tolerate it as well. We can't digest it as well. So then we can get some malabsorption. Um, it may not empty from the gut as quickly as it would normally when we're at rest. So that can lead to symptoms as well. So you've, you've got these kind of two main types of pathways um, um, that are occurring when we're exercising um, that can impact on on the symptoms that we experience. Yeah, and are they mutually exclusive? Like is it usually one or the other or not necessarily? Not necessarily, no, no. Um, and that's what, you know, we'll talk about this, I guess, a little bit later, but that's what we need to try and figure out when someone presents with symptoms. Um, there may be a more predominant pathway, um, but they there's likely some involvement um, with with both, but perhaps not as much um, from from one. Um, so that's yeah. what we need to try and determine for each individual. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned that they're kind of the main pathways, but are there other things potentially going on as well for some people? Yeah. Um, so you've got, um, you know, like um, mechanical mechanical um, factors as well. Um, so that's looking at um, potentially the, the type of and the mode of, of exercise. Um, so a classic example of that is, um, you know, runners quite um, common for symptoms compared to, let's say, swimmers or bike riders where we just don't have that impact and jostling. The other factors that can, um, you know, play a part in the causal pathway is um Feeding tolerance, as an example. Um, so, um, yet individuals just are not used to feeding when they're exercising. Um, and so, how the gut accommodates um, food and fluid, um, that, can be, that can be an issue. Uh, and then also malabsorption 
Um, so malabsorption of, of food and um, nutrients can also influence and impact on symptoms during exercise. Yeah, so that's where the food that's normally digested and absorbed into the, the blood is travelling through the intestinal tract but not being properly digested and or absorbed and, and absorbed. so it keeps going through uh, and then creates problems down the line in terms of um, being chewed up by the bacteria in the bacteria. large intestine and creating gas and things which can yep. cause a lot of discomfort yep. uh, but also as I think we'll talk about a little bit later on uh, it also sends feedback to the stomach that mm. can slow down the emptying of the stomach which can mm -hmm. also contribute to symptoms as well yeah 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 Cool. All right. So there's a few different things going on here. Uh, obviously, there's the lack of blood flow to the gut and potential damage to the lining of the gut, the cells that line that. Um, what I would add to that, though, is, um, you know, we talked about that sort of injury kind of like angina, to, so to speak. The, the cells in the gut turn over really quickly, though. They grow and, mm. and, and replicate and, and produce new cells really quickly. So that damage is actually repaired very quickly after exercise. So it's not, you know, we don't want people freaking out going, oh, my God, I'm having the equivalent of a heart yeah. attack in my gut. Yeah. Um, well, that's kind of technically true. The gut repairs itself incredibly quickly. Exactly. You know, um, and often if it's it's not a significant amount of stress, then within an hour or so, you know, we can see um, that injury go back, go back to baseline. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's that going on. There's the, the stress response to exercise, so sending the feedback through the hormones and the, the nervous system that, that interacts with the gut to you know, slow it down or, or stop it functioning as well. Uh, we've got the malabsorption, either creating you know, production of gas in there that obviously will be quite uncomfortable or feeding back um, mm. through that nervous system as well. And then that feeding tolerance, as you said, some people aren't used to the, the volume of food, so the, the gut just doesn't accommodate it um, very well. Uh, and I guess the, the extreme example of someone who does accommodate very well is like those guys who do the hot yeah, dog eating, eating competitions and stuff like that, that, um, mm -hmm. you know, major league eating, where they can eat like, you know, 60 hot dogs in 10 minutes. Clearly they're adapted their gut to be able to tolerate that really well. Um, whereas if you or I tried to do that, it probably wouldn't end very well. No, nah, they spend, you know, two, four weeks just to, to be able to do that. So they actually do gut training very well. Yeah. 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 Cool. All right. So let's. So we know there's kind of those those four processes that can that can go on, but let's talk about uh, why these processes are happening, or the things about our exercise um, that can cause those things to happen. Um, so if we start off with that stress response to exercise, what are the things that can make that worse? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so environmental types of factors that can make that worse would be um, heat uh, so or you know just temperature um, in our environment so we've spoken and hopefully people listen to Ollie Jay's um, podcasts on on thermoregulatory sort of response so um, heat humidity um, wet bulb globe temp I guess of your environment can can impact on our stress response so obviously the hotter the environment um, our body is wanting to to try and cool us down um, so again less blood flow is going to go to the gut because it's wanting to go to more to the peripheries as well um, as to the muscles so um, so that can can play a big impact because we'll we'll get more um, yeah what we say is less blood flow to the gut which can lead to then injury and then also can switch on that bigger stress response as well so the sympathetic um, system so you can see 
that um, both those pathways can can have a role um, in in symptoms. Um, so so heat uh, is is one uh, hydration as well. Um, so you know if we're more dehydrated or less hydrated, um, again um, less blood flow um, to to the gut again, um, which can um, impacts the same um, uh, injury um, to the gut as well as that stress response um, also. So how hydrated we are entering into um, into the exercise and how hydrated we're remaining throughout can, can potentially have an impact there. Um, exercise intensity uh, uh, also, so, you know, High intensity, um, short duration exercise can um, definitely impact on on symptoms. Um, significant amount of stress is in that. Um, lower intensity, short duration, um, less likely to to get symptoms. But then, when we talk about duration, um, the longer that we exercise, um, then the slower that our gut um, will work, it won't work as well. Uh, so that's um, perhaps more on that neuro neuroendocrine pathway. Um, and, and that can actually be lower intensity exercise. So I guess that's where you are looking at the ultra endurance um, athletes where maybe they're working at about that sort of 60% uh, or less of the VO2. So kind of like a nice comfortable chatting pace um, but they're out there for, you know, it could be the day, it could be 12 hours. Um, that can impact on, on gut, gut symptoms as well. Um, and other factors um, is circadian as well. So as you know, Alan, I um, just recently finished a study in, uh, in that area looking at exercising day versus uh, night and the impact that that can have and that's thought to again affect more that neuroendocrine stress hormonal um, pathway there uh, again where the gut just um, can quite significantly slow down um, more so in the evening um, due to that response um, yep. and okay. uh, and then you can yeah yep so that's the that's the stress response Although, as you said, um, factors like the heat will affect both the stress response and the blood flow in slightly different ways, but it's sort of a common risk factor to both. Uh, what are the other things that might affect the blood flow to the gut? Yeah, so blood flow to the gut, um, yeah, as we mentioned, heat, hydration, and also lack of nutrients in the gut um, as well. So when we consume uh, nutrition, as an example, carbohydrate, um, that actually helps promote blood flow um, in that area. Um, when we break down carbohydrate, um, we can break, break it down. We can produce some nitric oxide, um, so some dilators that can just, again, encourage blood flow um, to, to the gut, um, uh, which can help reduce, you know, less blood flow into that area. 
So they're kind of those main two pathways as you described earlier, but we also talked about uh, mechanical, and I think that's pretty simple. You, you gave the example before of you know running versus cycling, so we probably don't need to touch any more on that. Um, but some of the other risk factors, we talked about malabsorption as well. What are the things that tend to, to you know, put someone at risk of malabsorbing during exercise? Yeah, yeah. yep. Um, malabsorbing during exercise, I mean, it's it's possibly going to occur through that either of those pathways really to be honest um, so um, if it's that they're not getting much blood flow and they're getting some injury um, to to their gut then they're not going to be able to absorb as much nutrients as well um, transporters just aren't going to work as well um, that would normally pick those up and then in terms of from the neuroendocrine pathway as we've mentioned, the gut is just slowing down. It's just not functioning as well. It's not digesting as well. Um, so, you know, any, um, depending on the severity of that, um, really any food could could influence symptoms. Um, uh, but some examples could be just, you know, carbohydrates. Um, so examples could be um, FODMAPs. Um, uh, so the what we refer to as people may not know what FODMAPs are, so the fermentable types of carbohydrates. Um, and so some people just may not absorb that very well. And as you've mentioned, that's where they could end up in your large intestine. So they're not absorbed well in the small intestine, end up in large intestine. Bacteria will naturally break it down because it's a food source for them, produce gas and byproducts, and that can influence symptoms. Um, and some people um, may find that they're trying to throw in all these carbohydrates and, and things aren't necessarily agreeing with them. So they may then shift to low-carb, high-fat, um, uh, where they, uh, you know, are teaching their body, I guess, to burn, burn more fats and rely on that more so that they don't need as much carbohydrate. And some people may find that that's, that's effective for them. Um, so yeah, the, there are, I guess, some types of ways people can do it. Fiber, um, you know, um, having a high fiber diet, obviously, as we know, fiber's not, um, absorbed very well. It will end up in large intestines, so we can get symptoms through that way as well. Yeah. And so the low carb, high fat thing that you just mentioned, so that's more around, like if you eat a low carb, high fat diet sort of over a longer period of time. Uh, your body obviously gets much better at digesting and absorbing fat because you're putting more fat in there more often. But because of that, you're not putting in carbs very often and certainly not big quantities. So if you get to a race, having done a low-carb, high-fat diet for a long time and then suddenly have carbohydrate, you know, gels and sports drinks and whatever during a race, your body just doesn't have the... the yeah, the, the ability to, to digest it for a start. And then, as you said, the transporters, which are the basically the bits on the cells that allow those nutrients to pass through into the blood uh, and out of the gut. So you don't digest it properly and you don't get rid of it out of the gut into the and deliver it into the blood properly um, because, you know, your body's adapted to not needing to do that because you basically haven't given it that. Exactly, yeah. And, um, yeah, they haven't possibly trained yeah trained the gut with that um and yeah i think we just need to be careful as well going down that avenue um with what we may be um promoting to the gut um just 
yeah, I don't think there's enough science or um, evidence in that particular area on what we could be impacting on the gut. So um, there's research being done, um, but I think just be careful on that. And that's something you alluded to right back in our very first episode, 1A, with Professor Louise Burke, where we talked about, you know, is low carb right for me, that, you know, there is a potential consequence there in terms of the gut. You know, as you said, for some people, they find that um, it allows them to exercise for a long time at, you know, that kind of moderate sort of ultra type pace and not have to consume any carbs. But I guess the downside to that is we know that those carbs will help get some more blood flow to the gut. And so in very hot conditions where you've got you know, a more, uh, you know, lack of blood flow to the gut. Um, if, you, if you're not taking in anything during exercise, that potentially risks exacerbating that more. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, some other things that might be sort of risk factors. So we've talked about stress. We've talked about the blood flow, the malabsorption, mechanical. What about, um, you talked about feeding tolerance before. Mm-hmm. Yep. How yeah. does that become sort of a, a risk factor, I guess? Yeah. Um, so feeding tolerance, as we mentioned, like if we if we don't train the gut with um, being able to accommodate what we put in, um, it's it won't tolerate it. Um, and so what we see commonly, um, you I know as well, is athletes um, recreational to elite level um, don't always do a good job at practicing their feeding and what they're wanting to take in um, in their events or in their races and then they wishful thinking um, hope that that's going to be tolerated um, in in their events so but it it may not be and it's just simply because they haven't um, trained their gut to accommodate that gastric load and we've seen in research and in the field that we can train the gut um, and we would refer to the gut as an athletic organ. So we try and encourage athletes to do that. Um, and, and they need to, to start challenging their gut with load um, to start to build that, that tolerance um, and that yep. accommodation. Yeah. So before we were talking about, um, you know, like low-carb, high-fat diets as an example, that's more about the presence of the nutrient and stimulating the body to produce all like the enzymes that mm. digested and the, the bits on the cell walls that actually drag it out of the gut and into the blood. But what you're talking about now when you mean gastric load is just the physical quantity, volume of food and fluids that are going in there. So it's accommodating the, the, the bulk or the bulk. volume of food rather than the, the, the specific nutrients. Mm. So you, yep. yeah, you got to look at both. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, other risk factors, any others that spring to mind? Um, other risk factors, uh, a, um, a really common one that's looked at um, and it can be a lot of people get excited about um, microbiota. So, um, you know, the, the bacteria that's living in our body, living in our gut uh, and we, People think that if we can change um, the type of bacteria in our gut, that possibly that that can help um, with symptoms. And we've, we see it in general health, but um, there's also a lot of research being done in this area in exercise. Um, but the area is very new. And at this stage, I, I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of promising um, high-quality data. 
um, or you know really practical what we can do practically about it um, our um, lab is doing research in that Ricardo does a lot of research in that Christy Bennett um, has done work in that area um, and it's it's just so just you know the our diets change all the time that impacts on it the exercise impacts on it um, it changes so much and and daily um, that there's there's just not a heap of evidence in that area yet so I think shooting out to the pharmacy to buy probiotics to solve your exercise associated gut symptoms is um, not promising at this stage no okay so I'd say maybe in the future we'll have some answers but at the moment it's not too yet. early yeah. yeah okay um, anything else medications medical conditions anything like that yeah um so predisposition uh so individual history um you know if someone does have gastrointestinal conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease like crohn's or osteocolitis they definitely um, will be more prone to experiencing symptoms during exercise um, a family history of those conditions. Um, if we have irritable bowel syndrome, we're going to be more prone. So, so that that history um, there will make us more susceptible to symptoms. Also, uh, medication. So, um, uh, very can be commonly used in exercise uh, um, anti-inflammatory medication. So, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, so this is your ibuprofen, Nurofen. Yeah, and yeah. obviously there's prescription ones that are a lot more powerful, but that's I guess the common one that people would use a lot of. Yeah, and they may use it just it, it uh, maybe for muscle aches, um, they're hurting in their training, they want to keep running um, or doing cycling, whatever they're doing, um, and that can actually um, severely impact on on the gut and can lead to um, severe consequences as well. So urge people to be very careful in how they use. Um, anti-inflammatories in sports and exercise and make sure they're doing it under um, medical advice I would say yeah okay cool all right well that's a, a nice overview Steph of I guess what causes gut issues and what are the kind of the risk factors that sort of sit behind that in terms of then figuring it all out so what causes my gut problems as opposed to gut problems more broadly um, how do I know whether for me it's the stress response or the blood flow or the malabsorption or the you know feeding tolerance? These are obviously things that are um, a little bit different than saying you know brand X of gel versus brand Y of gel. Uh, I'm guessing it's going to be a bit trickier to kind of figure that out. And as you said before, some of these things kind of overlap on each other as well. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's it's very difficult. Um, so you know we can't expect. Um, anyone really to know what's contributing to your symptoms without doing some solid investigation in, in the area. So if you have nausea and I have nausea, um, your symptoms may happen mainly through one of those pathways, so the blood flow pathway perhaps more so. Mine may be more through the stress response pathway. Um, the only really good way and clear way to, to know and be able to draw a a better picture uh, would be to do um, some testing if we have that um, facility available to us um, and that's where we at the moment at Monash University we have the luxury of doing that 
Um, and what, how we'd always start things first, though, would be take a clear history, um, find out their background, um, you know, find out medical predisposition, find out um, what type of exercise is it occurring in, what type of environmental conditions. Um, so get a really good history of that. When is it happening? What are the types of symptoms? Um, and um, that then actually will help then draw upon what you then go to. Um, so in what I what we do at Monash, we would get that and then we would um, then simulate a, that particular exercise stress model in the laboratory. So um, it, it might be happening for someone where they're exercising in a, it's happening in an ultramarathon. So they're getting to four or five hour mark and they experience um, nausea, uh, which may then lead to vomiting. Um, we obviously can't get that individual running for five or six hours. Well, we could, but they wouldn't like us and we probably wouldn't like ourselves because we would have a very long day in the lab because it's not just five hours for us. It would be much longer. Um, but what we know and what we've discovered in, in research um, and by a lot of work, again, led by Ricardo Costa, is that um, exercise stress for at least two hours at 60% of VO2 in 35 degree heat, we can see um, quite significant changes to the gut and disturbances. And that type of environment, um, it's, it's simulating what is happening for that individual when they're in an ultra marathon. Um, so, um, so we would use something like that um, or we get them exercising for three hours at 60%, not in the heat. Um, but we basically can draw upon particular exercise stress models and we'll try and simulate it as best as possible to that particular individual and their sport if we can. Um, and then what we do is we um, then we'll take measures uh, so we'll we'll take the we'll draw their blood, um, and we can measure things like uh, injury to the gut. Um, we've got certain markers that we can get from the blood for, for that, um, and we can measure how how well the gut is working and how well it's functioning. Um, so there's certain breath testing and um, and tests that we can do for that. And one of my studies is looking at the um, electrical activity of the gut um, so we can we can look at that as well um, and we look at you know things like hydration uh, a whole range of factors that we will um, measure in that particular exercise environment and then we collect all that data and then we start to draw a picture um, and we can start to see is it more predominantly happening from which pathway um, or what exasperation factors are, are coming in here and having a more significant role. Um, yeah. Because um, as we see in the lab, everyone is so individual and there can be so much variation in markers and how people respond that there's no, okay, Alan, you've got nausea, so just go on a low FODMAP diet and that'll solve your problems. Okay, Steph, you've got nausea, you do that too. I can yep. bet you that that will not um, solve um, all of our problems. 
Yeah, exactly right. And I think that's probably, you know, if, if people don't take anything else away from this podcast, that's probably one of the, the most important messages is it's not as simple as, you know, need to go to the toilet equals this cause and nausea equals that cause and, um, you know, vomiting equals that cause. It's not a, a clear one-to-one relationship like that. And that's, I guess, how people tend to think about it. But unfortunately, it's nowhere near that simple. So as you said, you know, when we when we get people in the lab, we look at those risk factors that we mentioned before, you know, heat, hydration, you know, body temperature, the actual evidence of the, yep. the various processes happening, the injury, yep. the, the speed yep. at which things are moving through the gut. We try and capture as much as things as we possibly can yep. to try and, as you said, create that picture of what's going on in terms of what risk factors are playing out for that person and then what outcomes are occurring as a result of that. Uh, and it's not until you put all of those things together that you can really hone down and say, this is the cause or causes, because it could be more than one, um, of your specific um, gut issues. Yeah. Now, I know, Steph, you're working um, um, on some research at the moment, which is just writing up several people who came through and did an assessment with us. Mm. Do you want to, you know, without going into too much detail, mm. just give us a quick insight. I think it was about seven or eight people from memory, mm. just the, the diversity of the different causes of gut issues that you had mm. across those those eight people, just as a quick snapshot. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we had, yeah, nine people in the, in the end that went through, um, our case series, um, and majority of them, um, presented with, um, exercise associated nausea, um, and or vomiting, um, but they would vary in terms of other upper or lower gut symptoms. Um, and then some people just, um, exercise, like fatigue intolerance. So they just, um couldn't go like they they got to say an Ironman participant got to the run and just couldn't go just um Mm. completely fatigued um and for each of those individuals we put them through variety of exercise stress models depending on their sports um and their conditioning so if they're Um, a cyclist you put them on a bike if they're running you put mm. them on a treadmill yeah, we had a motorcyclist, um, and I was like, "Oh, this one's interesting." We don't um, have a motorcycle or a truck in our in our lab. Ricardo wasn't gonna wasn't gonna get us one. Um, so you know, but he actually did marathons. Um, so we got him in a marathon, and we put him in the heat because, as you'd know, um, motorcycle you you're wearing a lot of clothing. You get extremely hot. Um, or in his um, events, he did so. Um, we had a yeah triathletes. We do like a bike leg, uh, uh, sorry, a bike run leg um, component of that. So um, yeah, we put them in those situations, uh, and then we uh, yeah collected the data that we were talking about. And um, what we found is that there were ranges. Um, so some. It, it did tend to happen from one predominant pathway, which I won't go into too much detail because I'll leave that for our um, publishing. Um, but the it, it, it for some it might have been a predominant pathway, and for others it could be both um, both um, pathways. And then it, it, even with those pathways, you're then looking at. Um, what are the other exasperation factors or what are they doing to try and manage that pathway or what are they not doing to help manage that pathway Mm. and those factors can be different you know people may feed really well but they're not hydrating really well or you know um 
they're not feeding really well, they're hydrating too much or, you know, they don't thermoregulate very well. Even someone that you would think may do that extremely well because they're an elite athlete, um, they, they may not do that well. Um, and you don't know that just from saying, hey, I've got nausea, like, oh, you don't thermoregulate. <laughs> mm. you, you're not going to figure that out. And I would never have picked that for that particular individual unless I had all that data. And I saw and we saw exactly when they hit a particular um, temperature in their body, things just went pear-shaped. Or examples, what some people can get is when their intensity goes to, to a particular level things go pear-shaped. Um, but, yeah, you just you need to collect all the data if you can. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a really good lesson there of, you know, just the variety of different causes it can be for different people. For some people it's their body temperature, for some it's hydration, for some it's uh, mm. feeding tolerance, or it can be those they, two combined. Because of their yeah. feeding tolerance, they're not getting enough fluid in and then yeah. they're becoming dehydrated. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a multi-step pathway in that case. So, yeah, yeah. and for some people it could be a, a malabsorption issue for, you know, FODMAPs or something like that. Their and gut's it's just, not working. Yeah, but again, you yeah. can't just say FODMAPs is the solution no. for everyone because Steph published a study a couple of years ago about FODMAPs reducing gut symptoms. That yeah. works for some people, but it's completely irrelevant for others. Yeah, and um, incidence was still high in both of uh, yeah, in, in the groups either way, even with low FODMAP. Yeah. 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 Before we um, move on to, to what you do about it, obviously not everyone has the luxury of coming to our lab at Monash and doing a gut assessment. Um, the, I mean, Ricardo runs a, course, a short course for health professionals, which a few people have been through now. So um, we're not aware of anyone having set up a similar kind of assessment, although some people would probably have the, the wherewithal to do that now. Um, mm. But if, they, if you can't come to the lab and do an assessment, what do you suggest for the, the 90 plus percent of people that, that won't have that option? Mm. Yeah. Um, I would recommend that they... Ideally, try and see a trained um, sports dietitian with a special interest in that particular area. Um, so, example could be they could go onto the Sports Dietitians Australia website, um, and you can actually search in your location where there may be sports dietitians and see if they've got um, that that area. Um, if you're not sure, you might even be, you could contact Monash, and we may be able to point you in the right direction. Uh, that's that's also an option, um, and uh, that's I think that's really what I would be wanting to do rather than them doing a trial and error approach because there's just too much that they can guess and without right guidance, um, just fall into a, a trap hole and um, yeah, yeah I think it's it's better for them to go get. Um, good advice um, and do it well straight from the get-go if you can rather than what we tend to see and what I've seen a lot just even in my clinical practice is um, they they try and guess because they may not want to spend the money, um, uh, they don't think it will help um, and or um, they, they try all these other things, spend a lot of money in that or a lot of time in that just keep struggling and then eventually um, they may come and see, um, you know, see us or, or you see a sports dietitian that can help them in that area. Yeah, 
Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What would you say, Alan? Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, we'll talk about sort of prevention and management strategies in a sec. And I mean, mm. I guess if you're desperate and there's there's no other option, I guess the only other thing you can do is kind of throw the kitchen sink at it and is just mm. control as many of the controllable risk factors as you possibly can. Mm. Um, you may never figure out the cause of the issue, but you might just might reduce just it. you know reduce reduce the issue. You may not completely resolve it, but you might reduce it. Um, but you mean know, there will be situations where that's pretty much your only option. So um, yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's that's reality, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, there's good resources out there. They can again refer to um, our website, Monash University, and um, that can at least help direct them. Um, yeah. as well with pathways yeah yeah and we'll share a couple other resources that um ricardo's just recently published as well that might be yeah. helpful for people yeah okay so let's talk about what you do once you figure out hopefully you've been able to figure out the cause of your gut issue um, or if you're still kind of guessing it's like well what do i do now um what do you then do to try to manage these issues or prevent them from happening yeah uh so it's will depend on, obviously, depend on the, the cause um, and what you've identified there in terms of what is what is the main causal pathway um, and then what do we know um, and where's, where do we have the evidence for that um, particular strategy fitting into this pathway and model. Um, so like we have already said, you know, we know that feeding and as an example, feeding small and regular intake of carbohydrate can help encourage blood flow um, to, to the gut. Um, so, you know, if we've seen a particular individual um, is not feeding very well and has a significant um, amount of injury in their gut um, uh, and it's more happening from that blood flow pathway, then that would be one of those strategies that I would be using for them in their prevention management um, uh, routine. Um, I'd be getting them to practice with small frequent intake of carbohydrate and we would gradually work on that and um, work on where they're initially starting from. You know, if they have not had anything, I'm not going to jump them up to a massive dose. You, you gradually chip away at that and that's through then gut training. Um, it, it, it depends if dehydration is something that we've um, identified um, and or we've seen, okay, there's significant amount of injury and um, they're not hydrating well. Um, then hydration strategies are going to be something that we put in place um, for for that particular individual, and then we identify well what's the environmental conditions for that individual in their training in their competition. Um, so there's a wide range of prevention management um, strategies that um, it will depend on what's um, what main pathways impacting on on the symptoms. You know, if someone's um, struggling with um, the gut function so we've identified um, in the uh, that their gut just appears to be shutting down and some people will explain that to you they're like I get in you know I'm doing an ultra marathon um, or an Ironman and I keep trying to take on food and it just gets to a point where it just I just can't take anything and my gut it just shuts down and people will hear that from our guest um, coming up um, and then there's certain strategies that we can put in place to help with training training the gut, as we've already talked about. Um, 
So um, we will do particular gut training strategies and we would also look at the um, lead-in diet, so what they're consuming, the days leading into the particular competition. We can change particular um, dietary factors, things like fibre and residue and perhaps FODMAP um, to help um, ease the gastric load um, yep. for, for them. Okay, so if we kind of just summarise all of that up and feel free to chip in or, or add anything here, Steph, as I go through, I guess, first of all, there's multiple pathways of, that can cause gut issues during exercise. They overlap and interact with each other, so it's not a straight, you know, this symptom equals that cause and that symptom equals that cause. Uh, it's definitely not that easy kind of one-to-one -one relationship. Um, if you really want to figure out the cause of it, you pretty much have to go and do a full assessment and measure as much of these different things as you possibly can at the one time. Uh, in an environment that is likely to bring on those sorts of issues as well. You've got to make the, the exercise hard enough, either from intensity, duration, or heat, some combination of those three things. Um, whether you can figure out the cause of it or not, I guess thinking about the risk factors that you might try and control, obviously you can't control you know, genetic disposition and, and those sorts of things. So you know, to some extent, there's kind of not much point worrying about those. Mm. Control the things that you can control. So I guess in terms of reducing the risk, there's those things like, you know, body temperature we talked about with um, Ollie Professor Jay. Ollie J uh, in episodes uh, 4A and, and 5A um, in terms of, you know, trying to keep your body temperature down as much as you can. And, you know, we talked about um, potentially the issue with perception of temperature and, and, and that might actually trick you into to going too hard and raising your body temperature mm -hmm. too much. So if you're someone who is, is a bit prone in this issue, then things like, you know, menthol or, or other things that are trying to sort of trick your brain into thinking you're cooler than you really are may not actually be such a great yeah. idea in, in this scenario. Um Staying well hydrated, we talked with uh, Dr. Lewis James about that back in episode 3A. Yeah. Um, so you can go back and, and check that podcast out as well uh, around sort of hydration issues. Uh, as you said, then things that are, that are sort of sitting in the gut that um, don't get digested and absorb things like FODMAPs, um, like, you know, a lot of fibre and, and those kind of things. So, you know, minimising the amount of those that's present in your gut at the start of exercise, um, keeping that the frequent feeding, to stimulate the blood flow, gut training, obviously a big one, avoiding non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Uh, and then the final thing we haven't really talked about, Steph, is supplements. So mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about probiotics already, mm -hmm. but there's other supplements that often get marketed towards uh, reducing gut issues. Probably the biggest one would be glutamine. Mm -hmm. um, any comment on the supplement side of things? Yeah, yep. Um, I mean, there's starting to... Yeah, there's definitely a lot of research in the area um, and there can be um, some benefits to, to some of those supplements and glutamine can be one of them. Um, the, the percentage benefit that it would have though when you think about um, the other things that we can um, work on and change um, are, are very small. Like you're not, with supplements, you're not um, treating or managing the the causal pathways you're um, I guess putting a putting a band-aid on a on a on a cut really like superficial um, you want to really get um, to the cause and and um, and try and adapt that as best as possible that's where you're going to have your biggest bang for your buck so if you can think of strategies and have strategies to 
reduce the um, stress response um, or reduce the um, lack of blood flow. Um, work on those because you'll get your biggest bang for your buck um, versus working on the, the supplements that are really not working in those particular areas. So if you're being chased by a lion, you're better to avoid the lion in the first place rather than put yeah. on padding and hope the lion doesn't hurt too much when he does bite you. Yes. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And I think the only other thing that I just want to touch on with the, um, the, the symptom management is once we, or when, when it's identified what may be contributing to someone's symptoms, they then actually need to do the work to try and manage that um, because that's definitely an aspect that is not always done well um, and we might think, oh, this is wonderful, I now know what is contributing, um, but it's you need to then um, do, do the strategies um, that will help manage that and it may not be um, and it definitely won't happen in a day. Um, so you do need to do a bit of work to, to try and tackle those symptoms. But if you do the work, um, it most definitely can pay off. Yep. And sometimes that can be sort of, uh, I guess, quarantining a training session or two a week sometimes to mm. say, oh, I'm going to specifically work on X, Y, or Z, whether it's, you know, uh, meticulously tracking my you know sweat losses if hydration is the issue or mm. you know gut training deliberately going out and eating the volume needed mm. to, to do that properly which can be quite uncomfortable yes, as well can. and so it's kind of saying well that training session you know from a quality point of view might be a bit of a write-off because I need to focus on this um, yeah. but you know at the end of the day as you said if you, if you want the outcome you've got to do the work just like any other form of training yep yep cool all right well I think that brings a, a nice sort of conclusion to, to this episode, Steph. So thanks so much for your contribution. I think the final thing before we get into the bonus round, and you get to be bonus round tonight, um, the, the final thing I'd, I'd add to this is obviously, you know, as you, you mentioned up front, you know, research is uh, very much a team sport. There's a lot of people that are involved with it uh, and all this sort of gut research that's happened at, at Monash over the last, you know, 10 years or so and, and even before Ricardo um, Costa came across to, to Monash. He was uh, at the University of Coventry in the UK. So probably just a quick shout out to the, the various researchers that have been involved in all of this work mm -hmm. over the last decade or so. Yeah. Um, so obviously Dr. Ricardo Costa has been the leader of the lab doing all of this work and he's the one who came up with this sort of causal pathway model uh, mm -hmm. and put together all these things into that gut assessment protocol that we use in the lab. So obviously a, a massive shout out to Ricardo for the work he's done in that area and, and quite rightly he's being you know recognized as a world expert in that now um but you know other people that have, that have come through the lab and worked with him you know even going back to the uk dr sammy gill who did some yeah. of the early work um sort of observational field work a lot of it yeah. um, but also some of the early probiotic stuff probiotic, yeah, um, yeah dr rianne snipe who's now at deakin university did her phd with ricardo she was the first one at monash to do that and she did a lot of the work around feeding you know carbohydrate during exercise and the effect of the heat uh, and body temperature on um, gut issues. Yep. Um, Bonnie Taylor, who did some of yes. the early FODMAP work that you then inherited and, and finished yep. off. Yeah. Um, obviously yourself, you did that, the FODMAP study and now, you know, several other things as, as part of your PhD. Uh, yep. We've had Annie Zhu, who did a, a project with me around sort of hydrogels and, and gastrointestinal issues. We didn't touch on that today. That's probably a topic for, for another podcast. Yeah. Um, 
uh, Alex, Alex Parr, who's yeah. been helping you out in the lab, one of our yeah. Masters of Dietetics students. Yeah. Uh, Chris Rauch. Yeah. Uh, who who has been involved over a number of years, um, helping with a, with a few different projects and and starting to shortly publish some of his own. Um, Atlanta Mile, who did yep. some of the the early gut training research. Um, have I missed anyone? Oh, Anthony Koo is another one who helped out in the lab. He's he's now up in Queensland. Yeah. Anyone I've missed? Is a Isabella. She's oh yeah, done is some a, work in that as well. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yep. Isabella Russo, who's uh, yep. now in the UK, uh, yep. just finishing off her PhD as well. So, yeah, there's been a, a lot of people been involved in this research. So we, we certainly don't want to give the impression it's you and I, Steph, and, no. and maybe Ricardo, because it's been a lot more people than that. Yeah, over and Zoya as well. Yeah, yeah, Zoya um, helps out with our research too. So, yeah, yep. yeah exactly. Yeah, cool. good team, great yes. team to work with. And yeah. I think that's one of the things is um, – we do all work as a team, you know, like I know like a huge strength, you have so many strengths, um, but, you know, your area of research um, and PhD was in, you know, sodium sweat fluid. Um, so um, I'll come and tackle, tackle your brain um, with particular aspects when I'm working with an athlete that I may need to dig a bit deeper in that, in that area and, um, or, you know, work, um, yeah, just um, all all as a team to try and get someone better. So um, yeah, it's good. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Steph, it's time for the bonus round featuring you. <laughs> uh oh. Yes. What questions can I come up with yeah. for the bonus round? Okay. Well, the first one, I guess, that we ask most people: if you could do anything besides what you're doing now running a lot, doing research, working as a dietitian, and also working at the running company. It's a lot of things. If you weren't doing any of those, what would you be doing, do you think? I think I'd just be a adventurer. I would just, I'd just love going and traveling and just um, doing crazy fun stuff, whether it's jumping out of the plane, um, like, doing some of my fears. Uh, I'm absolutely terrified of sharks. So, you know, going in a cage and seeing sharks or um, just doing um, those things, being in nature. I love running. So running, hiking, um, yeah, that's it would keep me happy. So as yeah. long as I have an adventure every day, I'm pretty happy and I don't mind not. Um, I think I probably would still need to do – I still have to do some form of work and I love the gut. So um, I'd – still need to be in that area well jumping out of planes and diving with sharks ain't cheap so yeah i think yeah. <laughs> some work will be required there somewhere <laughs> all right well speaking of diving with sharks and jumping out of planes anything on your bucket list that you haven't done yet <laughs> i haven't done the shark thing because i am actually terrified jaws scarred me when i was younger um and i actually won't go in the beach any higher than knee level and even that is you know i'm getting goosebumps so <laughs> um bucket list uh item i actually a bucket list thing that i've always wanted to do is um bobsledding yes yes i want to bobsled so right. that's that's there the uh singles or four oh, they don't have singles in bobsled do they fours yeah fours yeah i'd like to do cool fours. You, you can join me yeah yep I have to work on my sprint. 
That's all right. Yeah, I'm not going to do the sprint. I'm just going to go in the front. Oh, right. Yeah. Minimal sprint. You're the yeah. one who jumps in first while everyone just else is still pushing. First. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> what's the next thing you're hoping to do or achieve in your career? Obviously, you're halfway through a PhD now, so might be something you've sort of put off thinking about for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, I, I love working in our lab and learning, um, and there's so much that I just – I'm continuing to learn from our team and um, particularly from Ricardo. Um, uh, area of interest for me um, is um, working in the area of um, inflammatory bowel conditions in exercise though. So uh, there's just not um, much research in that particular area. But as we know, people with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis love to exercise um, and it's great. Um, for them to be able to do that. Um, so I'd like to have a look at the impact of exercise on, on their gut and what perhaps we can do from a prevention management strategy to help them still be able to do that and enjoy it. And if they want to do ultra-endurance events, how can we help support them do that? Yeah, cool. Now, you've asked this question to a lot of people. So what's your favourite post-exercise beverage? Ooh, that is no doubt a beer. Yes. Um, and I like dark beers. I love a good stout. Um, I love Portagaff, um, which you can do um, stout with lemonade or I love going to Ireland where well, I've been there only once, but I'd love to go again, where they do that um, stout with like a with blackcurrant syrup. Um, Maybe you can yeah. join Chris on his next next uh, pub to pub tour over there. Oh yeah, yeah, I would I would be there. yeah. But just a beer, any beer, I'm abs actually not that fussy with, with beer, but that would be my post run, Deb. Yep, fair enough. All right, and final one, any piece of advice or motto? Oh, I like um, the book I read, I can't think of the author now, but people can look it up, um, One Life, One Chance. Uh, like that so basically live, I guess in a way live life to the to the fullest um, don't take anything for granted um, yeah I just I really love that um, that saying um, yeah awesome all right well as we do with every guest on the podcast thanks so much for your time Steph hopefully people have got a lot out of this podcast um, yeah and thanks for for sharing your expertise thanks for having me all right, thanks again, Steph, for being our guest on The Long Munch. This is episode 7A. Always happy to hear from people via social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're still alive on Facebook. We're not classified a media outlet, <laughs> um, as, as many have been. Um, so, yes, we're, we're still alive there, as, as far as I'm aware. Um, so, yeah, if you've got questions that you'd like answered on the podcast, feel free to hit us up like Michael has this week. Um, so thank you for that, Michael. We're, we're looking into that for you. Uh, and we've mentioned a few times already, Lionel, so we've got an episode lined up uh, for you if you're listening. Um, yeah, and, and that other feedback, um, good, bad or otherwise, we're, we're always keen to, to hear what people are thinking about the podcast and, and ways that you think we can do it better. Um, feel free to, to contact us there again via social media for those sorts of things. Uh, and then finally, if you want to leave us a, a rating or review on any of the podcast uh, platforms that you're using, be it you know Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, Spotify, uh, whichever ones you know, allow you to do that, uh, we'll be really grateful for that as well. 
Um, so that pretty much brings us to the end of, of episode 7A, Steph, but we've got, as always, our athlete perspective in episode 7B. So do you want to tell us a bit about who we've got coming in episode 7B? Yeah, um, so we have a professional um, triathlete, Ironman, uh, Aniko Lanos uh, from uh, Spain. And he will be joining us because he made a short flight um, over to Australia to Monash uh, University to our lab um, at base and um, participated in our exercise gastrointestinal um, testing um, to be able to look at perhaps what was um, impacting on his uh, symptoms during exercise. So we'll find out about that, um, what was involved for him um, and what was the outcome. Yeah, and the answer is probably not what people are expecting. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, and this is a, a really fantastic story too. Um, I think people will, if you love a great comeback sporting story, you'll you'll love this episode. It's fantastic. So yeah. yeah, really looking forward to bringing that to everyone next week. All right, so that's us done for episode seven A of the Long Munch. And uh, yeah, look forward to to all of you joining us again for seven B with our interview with Aniko Lanos. Awesome. See you guys soon. Thank you.